You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around looking at me. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. Oh, you have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. No Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome to the Tinsel Factory, a weekly film podcast. My name is Caitlin, and I will be your host. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to share a little bit about me and my background. Over the past decade, I've been paying my dues and working my way up the entertainment industry hierarchy, during which time I've realized that I have, for the most part, not only a vaster interest, but also knowledge about the history of the industry than the average person that I've worked with on set. I'm the person you can usually name two actors and a vague description of a plot of a movie to, and more often than not be able to conjure up the name of the film. I'm super passionate not only about making movies, but watching as many as I can too. I've been kicking the idea of doing this podcast around for a couple of years. I'm actually releasing this episode on the 10th anniversary of my move to Los Angeles. Add being trapped inside for five months because of a worldwide pandemic, and I've finally gotten this whole show on its feet. We'll see if making an audio podcast about a visual medium is a terrible idea or not, but at least for the last few months, this has kept me busy, and I've refrained from making any sourdough bread. I'm also making this podcast to expand mine and your knowledge of film, if for no other reason than to get a few more questions right in pub trivia, or at the very least, break up your listenings of true crime podcasts with something a little less murdery. For now, lots of good murders happened in and around the film industry. For me, as a longtime podcast listener, I hope that this podcast will become the source of information a young me would have always wanted. I am not a professional researcher or historian by any stretch of the words, but I am reasonably thorough, partially articulate, and have been explaining to my relatives and friends back home how what I do yields a paycheck for the better part of a decade. Plus, it's given me an opportunity to dust off my $150 textbooks on film history that my college bookstore wouldn't buy back and put them to good use. Don't worry if you aren't the world's biggest film fan. This podcast isn't going to be crazy academic. It's more of a casual conversation I'm having with myself. I'm not a huge fan of lengthy podcast intros, and no one is paying me to do this yet, so let's just get into this week's topic. The motion picture industry has been around for over 100 years, but your casual filmgoer might not know how it all began. For the next two weeks, I'll be going over a very quick run-through on the origins of film, with the third week focusing on some international film history. We won't be going into great detail on many individuals, movements, or technical aspects in these first few weeks. There will be plenty of time for that down the road. This is just to give you a baseline for everything we'll talk about in the future. I use as many sources as I can in the limited amount of time I have to write each episode, which you can find in the episode notes. Without further ado, let's take our places. It's showtime. The 
The technologies that led to film cannot be contributed to one individual. It was the result of dozens of breakthroughs by inventors primarily in France, Germany, England, and the United States. Humans have been telling their stories since the dawn of mankind. From cave paintings to the masters of the Renaissance, from the first written words to the plays of Shakespeare, art has become a way to entertain the masses, but also to preserve the human condition at any point in our histories. Around the 19th century, humanity finally reached a point where their technologies could capture their movements in addition to their stories. Primitive forms of what would become motion pictures were around for decades and in some cases centuries before the genesis of cinema. The Magic Lantern, for example, an early projection device not dissimilar to a modern-day slide projector, was invented in the 17th century to project painted slides onto large screens. A hundred years later, Magic Lantern shows would play to packed theaters all over the world, setting the stage for the motion pictures. Stroboscopic devices like the zoetrope were invented in the early 1800s, allowing a series of stationary images on a wheel to create the illusion of motion once spun. Before the holder's eyes, a series of stationary images came to life. A young boy began to walk. A young couple danced to a song only they could hear. A bird took to the air. This illusion was achieved with a phenomenon called persistence of vision, a theory dealing with how our eyes and brains process images. The first big step towards cinema, you won't be surprised to learn, was the invention of the still camera, which occurred in the late 1820s and 30s by French inventor Joseph Nietzsche Nietzsche. Using a piece of paper covered in silver chloride, Nietzsche discovered that exposing light to silver chloride darkened it, creating an image though he could not figure out how to preserve it long-term. After his death, Nietzsche's partner, Louis Daguerre, continued the work, creating the world's first sustaining photographic process in 1839. Eventually, the mass manufacturing of motion picture film would be pioneered by George Eastman, whose company Kodak would become the largest maker of film for decades. Using still photography to create a motion picture was born out of a $25,000 bet. In 1872, Edward Mybridge, an English-American photographer, was hired by the governor of California, Leland Stanford, to photograph his possessions, including his prized racehorse in a full gallop. Stanford had bet a colleague that at some point, mid-gallop, all four feet of a horse left the ground. Capturing this image was not possible with 1872 technology. Cameras took seconds to create an image, which was far too slow to capture a galloping horse with any decent detail. For the next six years, Mybridge worked on making his photographic process occur as quickly as possible. His efforts culminated in a camera with an electric shutter that could capture an image in one five hundredths of a second. In 1878, in front of members of the media, Mybridge rigged 12 of these cameras to go off when a tripwire was activated by the legs of the horse. The resulting 12 images were described as, quote, a magic lantern gone mad. For the first time, the intricacies of a horse in motion could be seen, and yes, there is a point mid-gallop when all four legs are in the air. Mybridge's feet became international news, and he would travel the world showing off his further studies of motion, and of course, Stanford won his bet. By the 1880s, French scientist Etienne Jules Murray had developed a camera that could take 12 photos a second via a rotating glass plate. Murray's camera was rifle-shaped, and he used it to study the flight of birds. Film actually started out as a scientific tool, not as a means for entertainment. 
1888, Murray had developed a box-shaped camera that could produce images on a perforated paper film and could photograph up to 120 pictures per second. While the more casual film fans have probably not heard of Nietzsche or Murray or even Mybridge, you've probably heard of this next gentleman. After inventing the phonograph, in 1877, Thomas Edison had decided to throw his hat in the motion picture ring after a meeting with Mybridge in 1888. He wanted to make something that could, quote, do for the eye what the phonograph does for the ear. Edison's assistant, W.K.L. Dixon, was put on the case. After their original concepts failed, they had tried to model the camera after their phonograph recording system to no avail. Edison, while on a business trip to France, saw Murray's camera in 1889 and began working on a new kind of machine. Implementing the newly developed Eastman Kodak film stock, the kinetograph camera, and kinetoscope viewing box were born. The first audience for their films was a group of women from the Women's Club of America who were being hosted by Edison's wife. The women were instructed to look through a peephole attached to a wooden box and saw a moving image within. The first example of motion picture as we know it today. To create content, as the kids say these days, Edison and Dixon then built a small studio covered with tar paper, which they named the Black Mariah. Without artificial lights, the studio rotated on tracks to follow the sunlight, allowing as much to enter the studio for as long as possible. Production on their films began in 1893 and were only 20 seconds in length, the most film the 1,000-pound kinetoscope could hold. These early films featured well-known athletes, excerpts from vaudeville acts, and performances by dancers, acrobats, and the Edison employees. Just as Edison charged people to listen to his phonographs in special parlors, so he did with the kinetoscope films. The first parlor opened on April 14, 1894 in New York. Other parlors quickly followed in the States and abroad. Other inventors, inspired by Edison's success, worked quickly to develop their own machines. In France, the Lumiere brothers, Louis and Auguste, inspired by Paris's kinetoscope exhibition, created a projection system that turned film into a social experience like a magic lantern show versus the singular viewing capabilities of a kinetoscope. The brothers also invented their version of the camera, the cinematograph. What would set this camera apart from the others at the time, most notably Edison's, was that the Lumiere's machine could also print copies of the film. It was also less than 20 pounds, making it portable, allowing them to shoot in the fields. Their first film, Workers Leaving the Factory, was shot around March of 1895, showing, you guessed it, people leaving a factory. Nine months later, on December 28, 1895, in the Grand Café in Paris, the Lumières put on a show of short films. Each patron paid one franc to enter, and it quickly became a booming business, with the Lumieres putting on at least 20 shows a day. The Lumiere technology became the European standard for this era, mostly due to the brothers sending their cameramen all over the world to capture exotic places for their audiences stateside. It is believed by historians that motion pictures have been shown somewhere in the world every hour of every day since. Feeling the pressure to adapt, Edison purchased the patent for a projection system. After making a few modifications, the Vitascope premiered on April 23, 1896 in New York City. The movie theater reached the States. Other groups of entrepreneurs continued to perfect the projection and recording of films for the remainder of the 1890s. 
By the end of the decade, film had become a leisure activity for the Victorian people, either as a peep show format with a kinetoscope or projected for mass viewing. Most major cities had some kind of theater that would show short films, and traveling shows made their way across the country to the smaller towns alongside lecturers, theater troops, and phonograph demonstrations. Producers were hesitant to build dedicated film theaters as they believed the vagabond lifestyle of a film print would be better for business. For now. By the beginning of the 20th century, what was being exhibited was changing. Early filmmakers began moving away from merely showing street corners, trains, and moving landscapes, called actualities, to narrative films. Sound was still about 24 years away, so to help the audience navigate the story, intertitles, first used around 1903, consisted of texts inserted intermittently between sequences to provide additional information such as setting, exposition, or dialogue. An early embracer of narrative films was George Millier, a magician who owned his own theater. After seeing a demonstration of the Lumiere's machine, he wanted to add films to his magic shows. At the time, the Lumiere's were not selling their machine, but Millier's managed to procure a projector and managed to essentially reverse engineer his own camera. Millier's brought his magic to film producing hundreds of shorts in his glass studio, using stop motion and other early special effects to create his fantastical moving images. His most celebrated film is likely 1902's A Trip to the Moon, a science fiction film about a group of scientists visiting mysterious beings on the moon. The image of their bullet-shaped ship lodged into the face of the moon is an iconic image of cinema to this day. While George Millier's films did possess editing in the most basic forms, most scenes were still presented similarly to a play. Many of the important techniques used throughout film today are thanks to the innovations of Edwin S. Porter, America's first true filmmaker. Porter worked as a director and cameraman for Edison's production company starting in 1900 and was one of the first to experiment with storytelling and continuity editing, which is essentially a form of editing that helps the audience know what to look at in the scene. The best example of Porter's experiments is considered 1903's The Great Train Robbery, the first American blockbuster. Cuts were made between multiple points of action, settings, and angles. Train Robbery is widely regarded as the first narrative film to have achieved continuity via the editing process. You'll hear Edwin Porter's name a lot in the early days of this podcast. Many of the American movie moguls were inspired to get into business after seeing The Great Train Robbery. In the early 1900s, Nickelodeons, which is Greek for nickel theater, popped up all over the U.S. to exclusively exhibit films with varying lengths of programming, most starting early in the morning and playing until midnight, entertaining the masses. Film exchanges, early forms of distributors, were founded, allowing theaters to rent film prints instead of having to buy them outright. With a reduced overhead and an increase in the programming at theaters, studios found it nearly impossible to meet demand and hired directors to try and increase production. At this time, films were primarily shot in the New Jersey, New York, and Chicago areas. If you've ever been to those places in the winter, you're probably aware that there's significantly less sun in the winter and the weather isn't exactly ideal. Production companies began searching for their winter homes. Locales in Florida, Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico were considered, but eventually most landed in the up-and-coming city of Los Angeles. 
Starting in 1907, the studios thrived under the California sun, including Paramount Pictures, Universal Pictures, MGM, Fox, Warner Brothers, and Columbia. The studios would create an oligopoly system that would both lead to and cause the downfall of its golden age, the Hollywood studio system. The elements of the studio system in simplest terms were thus. One movie studio controlled every element of filmmaking from script to showing. Films were primarily shot on their own backlots with creative personnel under highly restrictive long-term contracts. In addition, the studios bought up and enhanced as many theater chains as possible in order to dominate the exhibition and distribution processes as well. If they owned the entire pipeline, they got maximum box office returns. For the dwindling independent theaters, the studios created manipulative booking techniques such as block booking. With block booking, independent theaters were forced to take large numbers of a studio's films without even seeing them and in many cases not even knowing what they were until they received them. This way, the studios could bury some of their less quality projects with something more A-list. The theater, per their contract, had to play all of the films they received at some point during the agreed-upon period. This business practice was in place until the Supreme Court declared it illegal in 1948, ruling that movie studios must be separated from the theaters that show their products. A ruling that has been in place ever since. Until about a week ago, when a New York judge reversed the decision. The first feature-length film, A Birth of a Nation, directed by D.W. Griffith, way more about him down the line, a former actor for Edison turned director, was released in 1915. It was a whopping 12 reels long and over two hours in length, requiring Nickelodeons to increase their entry fee to maintain overhead. This film has very, very historically inaccurate and racist views on the antebellum South, the heroes of the film and the KKK for Christ's sakes, leading the film to be violently protested due to its degrading images and glorification of the pre-Civil War South. But the film was a massive hit, was screened at the White House, and became the highest grossing silent film. It also changed not only the way movies were made, but the way people went to the movies themselves. Though D.W. Griffith's career was never quite the same after the release of this picture, it cemented him within the echelons of film history. The new headquarters for the American motion picture industry did not have the dazzling reputation they had hoped. After a series of scandals rocked Hollywood, most notably that of Fatty Arbuckle and the death of aspiring actress Veronica Rappé in his San Francisco hotel room following a wild party, the fallout of the mysterious death of director William Desmond Taylor, and to prevent unions from entering Hollywood, in 1927, Louis B. Mayer of MGM and 36 high-ranking industry players wanted to create an organization that helped mediate labor disputes, which it would abandon by 1937, and improve the industry's image as a whole. While this was their goal in the early days, their primary focus eventually shifted to the fruits of a committee formed at the inaugural meeting of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, focusing on giving members of the industry awards of merit. In May of 1929, the first Academy Awards was held in a 15-minute ceremony at the Hollywood Roosevelt. 
91 years later, the award that would come to be known as the Oscar continues to serve as the most prestigious award in film. By the end of the 1920s, Hollywood was putting out an average of 800 films per year, approximately 80% of the entire world market. The heads of these studios, many of whom were immigrants that had come from poor backgrounds, were now rubbing elbows with the wealth on Wall Street and presidents. The films of the day were mainly comedies in the form of The Keystone Cops, The Antics of Charlie Chaplin, and The Misadventures of Harold Lloyd or Buster Keaton. People would sit on the edge of their seats watching swashbuckler Douglas Fairbanks or swooning over Rudolph Valentino. Women wanted to dress like Gloria Swanson or Mary Pickford. Clara Bow gave the world an image of a modern woman. These movies made their faces famous all over the world without anyone having ever heard their voices. That was about to change. Live music had almost always accompanied the silent films, ranging in size from a single piano to a full orchestra, depending on where you lived. Music was always seen as an important part of the film-going experience as it provided additional mood and atmosphere. In the early days, the scores would either be completely improvised or movements from classical music. Theaters in Brazil were known for using operettas, while Japan implemented live music and narrators. Occasionally, a more whimsical musician might add in some basic sound effects for good measure. With the rise of the feature film, studios would send the orchestra's notes, and in some cases photo plays, about what they should play and when. While attempts had been made to create synced sound since nearly the beginning of film, it would take decades before they would eventually succeed. It would be a scrappy, struggling Warner Brothers Studios that would win the sound race with their implementation of the RCA Vitaphone. While this was not the first successful attempt to put sound with film, the Vitaphone was the first to reach theaters with commercial success. Warner Brothers released the film Don Juan, starring John Barrymore in 1926, to test and train audiences for synced sound. It did not feature dialogue. The first film with that was The Jazz Singer, released in 1927. Audiences immediately took to this medium, and two years later, all film studios had converted to the talkies. The sun had set on the silent film era after 40 years and thousands of films. According to Martin Scorsese's Film Foundation, over 90% of all films made before 1929 are lost forever, but their influence will always endure. Time came when the ticker tape in the broker's office told a new story. It was panic. Sixteen and a half million shares of stock sold in a single day. Sold hopelessly, desperately, at any price. By the end of 1929, the stock market crash had obliterated many American fortunes, including those of the movie moguls. Much of their money was on paper, in bank loans or investment credit. The heaviest toll on them was the mortgages on the lavish picture palaces they had constructed throughout the 20s to house their films and having to convert all of their theaters for sound. Movie attendance was cut in about half to an estimated 60 to 80 million people each week versus the 120 million before the Depression. Studios, including Fox and Universal Studios, were being crushed by debt and moguls William Fox and Carl Lemley were forced to sell their studios. The introduction of the sound film essentially saved Hollywood. The audience's interest in sound films, coupled with Wall Street investments, would change the way movies were made forever. Look, 
Here's the mic. Right here in the bush. Yeah. Now you talk towards it. The sound goes through the cable to the box. A man records it on a big record in wax. But you have to talk into the mic first. In the bush. I'll try it again. She is dumb. Oh, she'll get it, Dexter. Look, Lena, don't worry. We're all a little nervous the first day. Everything's going to be okay. Sound caused a seismic shift in the acting talent pool. Many established actors and actresses now found their careers hanging in the balance based on the sound of their voice. British-born Reginald Denny, known for playing all-American boys in many of his films, couldn't master the accent required for him to be successful in the parts that had made him famous. Buster Keaton was eventually eclipsed by the sound pictures. His method of filmmaking, most notably shooting without a script, didn't seem to have a place in this new era of talking pictures. Requiring performers who were stronger with delivering dialogue, many popular actors from the radio, most notably Bing Crosby, crossed over into movies to monumental success. In the same vein, theater actors like the Marx Brothers, James Cagney, Katherine Hepburn, and Betty Davis also rose to stardom. Other actors took it as an opportunity for change. Mary Pickford, the queen of the silent era, despite having won an Oscar for her first speaking film, decided to retire when sound became standard. Lillian Gish, D.W. Griffith's muse, made several sound films, but decided she'd rather work in theater, though she would return decades later to a very successful TV career. Acting styles and blocking, how the actor moves in a scene, had to change at this time as well. The first microphones were large, short-ranged, and very difficult to move. If you've ever seen the film Singing in the Rain, you have a comic view of the early struggles of mic placement. Actors could not move around or gesture wildly and had to stand very close to microphones in order to be recorded. Cameras, previously able to be as loud as was needed, had to be packed into soundproof boxes, causing discomfort for the operators. It also limited the camera's movement. Many of the moguls, like Jack Warner, only had a sixth grade education and therefore did not have the abilities to write a compelling script. Enter the screenwriter, a new addition to the pipeline that neither mogul nor writer was terribly thrilled about, but a necessary one in order to move the art form forward. While the Hayes office had been around for a while, it was the adoption of the production code, also known as the Hayes Code, in 1930 that would drastically change the content of the Hollywood picture. In response to the previous mentioned scandals rocking Hollywood in the 1920s and some of the salacious content in movies that they feared would get them into hot water with the government, the studios had taken to a level of self-censorship. While some filmmakers, like Cecil B. DeMille, had always managed to sneak in the salacious scenes his audiences enjoyed, sex has always sold. He got away with it so long as the film had a morally positive ending. But, as mentioned earlier... Hollywood kept getting hit by scandal after scandal, leading to a strict code of ethics being enforced. Though written in 1930, but not actually enforced until 1934, the production code caused the contents of films to drastically shift. The Hayes Code was the first strictly enforced set of rules banning things like nudity, suggestive dancing, talks of sexual perversity, whatever that means, ridicule of religion, lustful kissing, and don't you dare show a bathroom. While the code would lose influence over time, the Hayes Code remained until it was replaced by the MPAA system in 1968. More on that next week. Toto? I have a 
feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Color had been experimented with from almost the beginning of film. Some would paint their frames, but the most widely used method was the tinting and toning of the film stock. Tinting would involve dipping the film in a bath, dyeing the entire frame, while toning would only color the dark parts of the film frame by coloring the exposed silver. D.W. Griffith was a heavy user of this medium, often dyeing different sections of his films different colors in order to achieve a dramatic effect or mood. This method eventually fell out of vogue when the soundtracks were added to the sides of the film cells. In 1908, George Albert Smith developed KinemaColor for use by film producer Charles Urban. The process involved shooting with an alternating red and green filter passing in front of the film while shooting, then projecting the film back through another alternating red-green filter onto the screen. The resulting effect, despite being only two colors, was actually fairly successful at first. But the lack of blue sky in the resulting prints and the jittery nature of fast-moving objects on the film would eventually lead to the downfall of this process. As the years went on, several different companies tried to achieve color but were unable to do so. The first truly successful color film stocks would come from a company called Technicolor. By 1922, Technicolor had successfully created two-tone film stock, which could be run through a standard projector, no special equipment required here. The Toll of the Sea was the first film to use the stock and was an instantaneous success. When the movie musical fell out of vogue in the mid-1930s, Technicolor was directly affected. Audiences associated Technicolor with the movie musical and therefore were less inclined to see a film, musical or no, if it was in color. It didn't help that Kodak also released a high-quality black-and-white film stock that produced results using normal lighting situations versus Technicolor's completely different lighting system, which was also very expensive and was completely different than what filmmakers were used to using. Most cameramen were properly trained to optimize the Technicolor system and reverted back to black and white. It didn't help that Technicolor was also incredibly expensive. If you wanted to use this new system, you would have to use their approved cameras, camera operators, makeup, artists, etc. And of course, process and print the film through Technicolor. Naturally, people were hesitant to use this system, so Technicolor went to a little man known as Walt Disney and offered their system to help Walt enhance his silly symphony cartoons, and the rest was history. In 1937, the first full-length animation film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, released and became one of the highest-grossing films of the era. By 1954, more than 50% of all films would be released in color. Germany's morning hate in this war takes the form of massed aerial attacks on the defenses of London. So this is now a familiar sight and a familiar sound. Film had changed a lot in the roughly 50 years since Edison's Black Mariah studio in New Jersey to the backlots of Hollywood. By the beginning of World War II, the film industry was at its peak influence. In Britain, 32% of all citizens still went to the theater during the war. Films were produced there that taught British citizens how to recognize the enemy and how to assist soldiers in the front lines doing things like knitting. In Germany, their film industry was overtaken by the Nazis, who pumped out propaganda to the people. 
these films would praise the German lifestyle while spreading malicious hate about the Jewish people. The film's release included information instructing the German people how to act while justifying the deeds of the Nazi party. In 1941, the year the United States entered the war, nearly 80% of Americans were against this action. Many of the studio heads in the States were Jewish and struggled with whether or not to speak out about the rise of Hitler and Nazism for fear of the rising anti-Semitism coming out of Germany. Joseph P. Kennedy, co-founder of RKO and current ambassador to Britain, also JFK's dad, in a meeting with the studio heads, urged them all to take Jewish names off of all of their films. This all changed with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. If you've ever been to Hollywood, one thing you're sure to remember is this converted barn in the heart of the city. Here, under the leadership of Betty Davis and John Garfield, all the guilds and unions in Hollywood have collaborated in creating and maintaining the Hollywood Canteen. More than a million servicemen of the United Nations have been entertained here by almost everybody in motion pictures. The studio heads and actors appeared side by side in an effort to raise money for the war. Several actors, including Jimmy Stewart and Clark Gable, and nearly 6,000 members of the movie industry enlisted to fight. The moguls wanted to stay on the good side of the president, not wanting the industry to be looked over with a fine-tooth comb. Hollywood churned out propaganda films, promising a better world once victorious, while instilling a justification for the war and, of course, the role Hollywood provided during this time with its entertainment. News clips played before the movies and most films produced during this time were focused on what life was like during the war for better or worse. The moguls made a fortune, with many going to the movies almost every night. By the end of the war, the world had become a very different place a place that wasn't going to the movies anymore. Soldiers returned home and began their lives with their young families in newly formed suburbs, taking them away from the theaters in the cities. In 1948, the ruling of the U.S. versus Paramount Pictures, Inc. ruled that studios owning theaters was a direct violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act, forcing the film studios to sell all of their theaters. The television was starting to make its way into households, altering the landscape of how people got their information and entertainment. There is more trouble on the horizon for Hollywood, too. The House Committee of Un-American Activities turned its eyes onto Hollywood and began to shake the tree in search of those they believed were a threat to the American way. This is where we're going to leave it today. Next week, part two, as we make our way through this very abridged history of film. Every week, I'll be posting corresponding photos and videos of everything I've described today. You can find them on my Instagram page at TinselFactoryPod or on the Facebook page, The Tinsel Factory. If I got anything wrong, let me know. I want to get better so I can put out a better show for you. All of my sources are in the show notes as well as some recommended viewing. Do be aware that some of the content has outdated views for a modern audience. If there's something you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out to me on social media or at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm really looking forward to finally getting this thing off the ground and seeing where it takes me in the next few months. Until next week, that's a wrap.